Welcome to New Creation Conversations, a podcast devoted to helping followers of Jesus live more fully as reflections of the new creation. I'm pastor and professor, Dr. Scott Daniels, and I'm excited to invite you to listen in on my weekly conversations with leading scholars, pastors, and lay leaders as we explore together the joys and challenges of following Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are part of the new creation. Old things are passing away. Look, all things are being made new. So come along, let's embrace the new creation together. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode one of the New Creation Conversations. In this inaugural episode, I'm joined by Old Testament professor from Duke Divinity School, Dr. Brent Strawn. Brent's a graduate of Point Loma Nazarene University and Princeton Theological Seminary. In addition to his current role at Duke Divinity, Brent has served on the faculties of Candler School of Theology at Emory University and Asbury Theological Seminary. In this conversation, you're about to hear between two old friends. Brent and I talk about his most recent two books, The Old Testament is Dying, and the just released, Lies My Preacher Told Me, An Honest Look at the Old Testament. Together, Brent and I talk about all kinds of things related to how the Old Testament shapes the life of Christian faith. I learned a number of new ideas myself that I will use in my journey with Christ, but also in my preaching in days to come. You'll especially want to stay to the end of the conversation where Brent gives some wonderful advice for everyday Christians. So thanks again for joining in on this new podcast adventure. And here's my conversation with Dr. Brent Strawn. Well, it's really a privilege on this first new creation conversation uh, to have a conversation with my good friend, Dr. Brent Strawn. Uh, Brent, we've known each other a long time and have kind of similar backgrounds uh, growing up in the Church of Nazarene. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your journey. No, you know, no little boy when you ask him what do you want to be when you grow up says, "I want to be an Old Testament scholar." Right. So, talk a little bit about well, maybe uh, your me, maybe faith, but what led you to Old Testament studies. Well, thanks for having me on, Scott. So <laughs> fun to see you and chat, and you know, it's always a good time. And so uh, we'll we'll let other people listen in while we have a good time, if nothing else. And I think I can guarantee at least my mom will tune in to this conversation. <laughs> your, mom, your mom and my mom. <laughs> hey, two two, two hits, but really you can multiply that because two hits usually means two eye two sets of eyes. That's that's right. for me. That's right. So. Um, so yeah, I was raised in the Church of the Nazarene, and my folks are involved in the local church and also uh, in higher ed at uh, Christian Higher Ed at Point Loma Nazarene University. And um, so, and I felt called to ministry as a young boy, uh, fairly young, but I, I thought that I would be uh, a parish uh, minister, be a preacher, um, and just through a series of uh, unfoldings, um, some random but uh you know in retrospect providential uh i um ended up uh, in seminary in new jersey and became more and more fascinated uh with the old testament and uh ended up pursuing a phd in old testament and then getting a job uh, teaching uh, biblical studies and and then one focusing only on old testament and 23 years later or whatever here i am uh, but my love of scripture goes back to when I was a very small boy. I mean, I don't think I thought I'd be an Old Testament professor, but loved the Bible, sort of fascinated with it. My my NIV children's Bible was the start <laughs> of it, uh, you know. And I and the, and in part of, around here somewhere, yeah. And the yeah, it, I, the other day I don't you know I don't have my original one. The other day I was like, you know, that's such an important kind of physical object of faith that I sought it out on on the internet, you know, a copy of it and and bought it because it's kind of you know it's kind of like a an Ebenezer, right? It's like a stone or something that reminds <laughs> me of 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 my past and uh, it was even those pictures uh that were included in the children's bible that made an impact on me i think but so i was a bible quizzer and then when i went to college of course i was going to be a religion major because i thought i was going to be a, a a pastor and of course i was a bible major because reuben welsh told me i should be a bible major and so uh it was religion bible concentration and that meant i took greek and i then i took hebrew my senior year and and that's and and then wrote a a thesis project on the prophets my senior year and and all these seeds that had been planted by not only my upbringing but my profs at point loma just started uh, you know sprouting and 
flowering. Yeah. Was there a particular genre of literature in the Old Testament that that drew you in at first? You know, at first, I was just talking about this yesterday in class. At first, for whatever reason, and you know, my my prof said Point Loma. I didn't have a, a an Old Testament professor per se. That is, I had profs teach me Old Testament, but I didn't have a prof that was an Old Testament professor by training. They were the the Bible profs were all New Testament PhDs. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, I started. Uh, I was fascinated with the commentary literature. This is partly Bob Smith. He had a wonderful library that I used to just Google at. You know, when I was in his office. And uh, so I think in the early days, it was um, it was large, largely the prophets and it was people like these great German scholars of the mid 20th century who came through World War Two and who were um, basically part of the confessing church. So Hans Walter Wolf and Walter Zimmerling and commentaries on Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel and Amos and Wolf wrote a number of, very, of small popular books, too, like the Old Testament, a guide to its writings and confrontations with prophets. And, and he was really an inspiration. I think if I hadn't had some of Wolf's books, I think maybe I wouldn't have gone into Old Testament. Wow. Interesting. So you've done a lot of writing over the years. Um, we, uh, at College Church, we use the Common English Bible every week. And I know you read the translation. Um, but your previous book, we want to get to the new one in a minute, but I loved uh, reading the Old Testament is Dying and have it all marked up. And it has shaped some of the ways that I think about what we should do in worship. But essentially there you're arguing that the reading of the Old Testament, the preaching of the Old Testament is disappearing in the worship of the church, Mm -hmm. uh, which makes you sad, not just because you're an Old Testament scholar, but because uh, if that happens, a big part of who we are as people of faith goes missing. So, Mm -hmm. So what happens to us, Brent, when the Old Testament goes silent in our worship oh man so much so much goes wrong um obviously wrote wrote the book about it but i think in some ways i i think in some ways this goes back to your first question i think you know wh- why would someone go into old testament you know in general well it's not because i flunked the new testament exam i just <laughs> want to point, point that out it wasn't like i tried and they said no it just isn't gonna work out for you yeah. yeah you know you're about here we expect here for new testament scholars um, <laughs> I think it was uh, in part because the Old Testament was great undiscovered country. You know, I, I actually had, I think, wonderful church experience growing up and wonderful pastors. And um, uh, that being said, I think the Old Testament was mar- was largely unknown territory. Um, I think that's common in the Christian experience. Uh, I don't think it's great. I mean, in fact, I think it's quite problematic and even wrong now, but I, but I don't mean that disparage my upbringing or whatever because I think it was it was great but I think it was what's going on over there and is it any good especially because sometimes I think when I heard from it I got the feeling that maybe it wasn't good or wasn't helpful or something or at odds and so um, it was this kind of personal I think trek to understand what's going over there going on over there in that old testament land and when, and when I did you know I, I feel like the it's there's, there's so much to say I mean there's great gifts the Old Testament offers us that that if not if they if they are also found in the New Testament, which I think they are, they're still found in some sort of special density and or unique way in the Old Testament. I mean, things like uh, the corporate nature of the people of God. I mean, you know, it's it's easy to read the New Testament as if it's just about me and Jesus, and that's pretty much it. That's not how the New Testament is best read, but it's easy to read it that way. You can't read it that way in the Old Testament. I mean, it's just, it's the people of God in mass, judged, saved, et cetera. We're all in it together. And that, that notion of the congregation of Israel, you know, in, in, in the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament, that, that congregation is the ecclesia, it's the church. And so, you know, to me, suddenly that became a, a way to think about the relationship of the Testaments that that everywhere Israel is, the church can be read there as well. Not, not necessarily instead or replacing, but, but also as grafted into the story of Israel, the tree of Israel, as Paul puts it in Romans. So that corporate nature is inescapable. Or, or another thing that I'm working on right now in my current book project is the brutal honesty of the Old Testament. I mean, it's just brutally honest. It's honest about sin. It's honest about suffering. It's honest about violence. 
And in my upbringing and experience, it's easy for Christians to think um, that that's sort of bad. And, you know, all this bad stuff in the Old Testament that we don't have in the New Testament. And again, it's in the New Testament. There's honesty in the New Testament, but it's just unmistakable in the Old Testament. (laughs) And there's a lot more to say because it's about a thousand years versus, (laughs) you know, a couple decades, you know, for the New Testament. Just stretch that church history out a thousand years and you got plenty to worry about and plenty to confess in terms of sin, suffering, and violence in the history of the Christian church, too. So honesty, the corporate nature of the people of God, I think insight into the first member of the Trinity. I mean, where where one member of the Trinity is, all members of the Trinity are, according to Christian doctrine. But it's been common to think about God the Father, particularly prominent in the Old Testament, so, you know, there's gifts like this. Maybe maybe the last one I'll throw out is poetry. Poetry is a, a unique gift in the Old Testament, that very little of it in the New Testament. And and that gives us another discourse by which to think about God and speak about God and, and teaches us something about how speaking and thinking about God is is elusive and difficult to, to nail down. Yeah. It's been uh, interesting in this year, uh, just to experience it, first of all, in worship, but to hear so many people talk and write about the significance of lament and mm-hmm. all of the, even even a book that we have, we kind of skip over, unfortunately, but a book like Lamentations that is just mm-hmm. full of, of honest, brutal yeah. cries of pain and expectations that, that God will do something um, yeah. and has covenanted and promised to do something and so um mm-hmm. let's hold god accountable for that and let's lament um in the yeah, hope sure. of, of the knowledge that god um that god is good and faithful for sure i think you know you, you know this from reading the book but i'll just I'll, i just want to point it out to your mom and my mom too that, <laughs> that they're listening <laughs> that you know for my concern about the old testament's decline is you know actually deeply connected to the new testament's decline i i say in the book that if if, if the old testament dies the new testament's not far behind and so in general, you know, what I, I, I am most worried about, exercised about, sad about is the decline of scripture more generally um, in Christian worship, but, but really in Christian experience and practice. Um, I mean, I think, you know, when, when we stop listening to the whole witness of scripture, we start losing whole huge uh, swaths of our vocabulary as Christians. And so, like you said, suddenly we don't know what what to lament or how to lament or how to complain to God, because we haven't read that and we haven't seen it, that it's all over the Bible. Um, And so therefore we're diminished. We have a diminished prayer life and a diminished spirituality because we no longer have what God and God's wisdom bequeathed to us in scripture. Yeah. Thanks. All right. So let's talk about the new book. Um, And I'm trying to get over my offensive, the offensive (laughs) Uh, no. I know. I no, felt I, a little guilty about it. I'm not. No, you lie. shouldn't. It's, it's provocative. It's provocative. <laughs> so the new book, "Lies My Preacher Told Me," an honest look at the the Old Testament. Um. So my understanding is this is uh, I I haven't gotten my hard copy yet. Although I I oh. I downloaded my there Kindle is. version. There it is. There it is. There it is. Lovely. <laughs> Um, it's a thin little book easily. Yeah. You know, look at that tiny little Yeah. Book. Well, and it's built, it really is accessible and built for small group conversation. Right. That's right. That's right. Right. Yeah. Adult ed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you talked about it a little bit, but talk a little bit more about why the old Testament is not obsolete or pushed aside by the new Testament. Um, I, I can think of a, a recent popular book written by a well-known preacher uh, <laughs> that basically said, it's nice and you should pay attention to it, but it's not really our book. Go with this other one, right. um, which I know didn't bless your soul, but uh, no, it didn't bless my soul. Yeah. Yeah. So why is I've got, I've got a me, I've got a really mean book percolating about that book. <laughs> <laughs> haven't yet had a chance to write it, but I did have a colleague, Luke Johnson, who once said, you write best if you're mad. Yeah, we all need it. We all need it. Well, in defense of the title, the title cribs off a famous history book called Life My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen. And that's about history textbooks in North America, mostly mostly high school history books, textbooks. And 
And uh, it's a his his book sold over a million copies, so one can only hope. <laughs> but he actually points out that uh, that he's not angry at teachers, and his book doesn't actually go at teachers, but at these textbooks. And so I make some similar caveats about about the book's title here, and that I've had great, uh, actually great. Uh, preachers in my life. And, and I dedicate the book actually to four of my favorite Sunday school teachers who made a difference in my life. So, but um, yeah, one of the, one of the mistruths that I take up and it's, it's a big one is, um, it's what I call mistruths that somebody taught us. We learned them somewhere um, is uh, the old Testament is, is obsolete. And I, I argue that that's a mistruth or a lie. And at this point, the, this more recent book connects to the Old Testament design book, because what I do is I talk a little bit about a moment in early church history with this guy named Marcion, who was a famous heretic in the early church. He was really the first one to say this in a substantial and extensive way. The Old Testament is obsolete. We don't need it. And he lived in 85 AD to 160 AD. And he evidently was the son of a preacher's kid. So it happened. <laughs> He's a preacher's kid. Yeah, a son of a preacher, maybe even a bishop. Uh, so, but he, uh, Marcion said, we don't need that and eliminated it. And, uh, and then as a result, interestingly enough, eliminated a lot of the New Testament too, because the New Testament was just too Old Testament-ish for him. <laughs> so, you know, he couldn't have all four gospels, especially not Matthew, which sounds way too Jewish. Uh, so he settled for Luke. But he had to cut down Luke. He had to make a severely edited copy of Luke. He had to take all the part out that that about Jesus's birth, for instance. It just sounded too Old Testament-ish, and he didn't want all of Paul's letters, just some of Paul's letters. And then he had to cut those out. You know, the parts that sounded too Old Testament. So he's like he's an example of how you know the, there were options already in the early church that the Old Testament is obsolete, and also that if you do that, if you go that way you end up killing the New Testament too, because Marcion didn't have the full New Testament. He just had his own special version of it. In our more recent American experience, this is Thomas Jefferson taking his scissors out and cutting the parts of the Bible out that he doesn't like. Um, what happened is that the early church said, thanks, but no thanks to Marcion. You, you're, you're completely wrong about this. And what what you've done is not only do some surgery to the Bible, you've done surgery to the faith, the Christian faith, the Orthodox communion, and, and it doesn't survive in your vision. You, everything gets messed up. Your, your doctrine of creation, your doctrine of God, your doctrine of, of Christology, your doctrine of salvation. And the early church writers who responded to Marcion at length uh, demonstrated this, I think, in rather compelling ways. So that's what's so important about, you know, this this problem that continues to live with us i i have this book somewhere that you've mentioned nearby because it <laughs> it exercises me motivates me um but it's so important to to respond to those those notions that the old testament is obsolete by saying no actually it's not and the church has definitively said so since the third century um you know a.d second century early a.d well yeah and even even Paul's famous quote that people tend to use for the whole, the whole Bible, that scripture is inspired by God. Yeah. Seems to be, I mean, people forget Paul didn't know he was writing scripture when he wrote that, but <laughs> that's right. That, that's right. That he seems to be addressing that very same concern too. Here is this apostle to the Gentiles who mm -hmm. is wanting to say, no, li listen, <laughs> uh, that's right. It seems to be inspired. That, that statement seems to be inspired by people who think the old Testament was irrelevant for Gentiles. That's right. And, and so when he says all scripture, he's speaking of the Old Testament, what was scripture for him at that time as, as a Jew. And that's, that's all the Old Testament, uh, starting with the Torah, the Pentateuch and working its way down. But, you know, this, this is true, too, in the way the gospel writers think uh, constantly to justify and explain Christ and what Christ did and what happened to Christ constantly with reference to the Old Testament. This happened in order to fill the words of the prophet or as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. And so the, uh, one of my you know, former colleagues, Luke Johnson said that the, the new Testament authors, you know, the world that they inhabited, the symbolic world that they inhabited, it wasn't, you know, Facebook or, or whatever ESPN, it was, it was the old Testament. That's, that's what they lived in and moved in and had their being. So that's what they sort of thought. Those are the categories and everything they, they thought. So nothing could be further 
the, uh, from the truth and that the Old Testament is obsolete for the New Testament writers. The New Testament writers just lived in it and soaked in it. And that was, that was their bread and butter. And so they explained everything about Jesus with reference to the Old Testament. They, they considered the Old Testament scripture and authoritative. And, and this is why they, they echo and, and, uh, and repeat and affirm. Uh, though there's also, you know, growth and tensions as well. I don't want to underestimate those. Right. Those are there as well. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's interesting, even in this Lenten season, even something as basic as Christ cry on the cross, why hast thou forsaken me, is rooted mm-hmm. in the language of Psalm 22. And, and there, mm-hmm. you know, just all of the scripture has echoes of that Old Testament language and mm-hmm. uh, like a pair of glasses through which they viewed the world. Um, yeah, for sure. So one of the things, uh, you know, that scholars love to do with the Old Testament, both Testaments really, but the Old Testament is such a unique form of literature and issues of authorship are can mm-hmm. get kind of complex because uh, the ancient world thought of books very differently than, yeah, than we do today yeah. of single authorship and having to reference things, et cetera. And so, you know, like long debates about how many Isaiahs are there and, you know, how many... <laughs> Sections of Isaiah and authorship of the Torah. Careful, Scott. Careful. Careful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I know in the new book you talk a little bit about authorship. Why? Why are some of the complexities of authorship and the kinds of literature that's in the Old Testament? Why is that important for an average Christian to think about? Yeah, actually, this chapter title came from from my pastor in Atlanta, uh, and uh, I kind of canvassed a few local friends, I guess, when I first started working on it. And uh, he came back with, uh, how about you write on this mistruth? David wrote all the Psalms. <laughs> so I, I called it, uh, I called mistruth six. David wrote the Psalms and other unhelpful historical assertions. <laughs> that was my addition to what, what John suggested. Um, but you know, when he said that, I, at first, I didn't think I would pursue it. And then I came back around to it and thought, yeah, I'll include that one. That's, that's a, a good one to think about precisely for, for this reason you mentioned that, you know, what do we, what should we think about when we approach biblical literature? And it's striking to me how much we default as moderns to thinking immediately about, about authorship and place and location and time. And, um, you know, I have, I have, stories I could tell about family members, extended family members, or, or uh, friends who might call me excitedly someday, you know, that they just read this, you know, text in some book of the Bible. And they, they want to tell me not only like how great it was and that they've been moved by it, but who wrote it, Brent? And when was it written and all that? (laughs) (laughs) And I think to myself, I don't know. I mean, I I don't, I should know. I suppose I have a PhD, but I, I don't know. And, and also, does it matter? I mean, they, they've been moved. They've been touched by the Spirit through these words. And that's the point of contact with them, uh, the Spirit speaking to them through the words of Scripture. The point of contact is not with the author who died and is no longer with us and may or may not be known or accessible. There's very few people we know by name, really, who authored parts of the Bible. And, and as you say, some of the ways authorship was thought about in the ancient world, uh, it, it probably doesn't mean exactly what it means now. There's no copyright uh, laws and legislations and all that. So in the, in the book, I, I think I quote, or at least I took inspiration from a poem by Billy Collins, who's the former U.S. Poet Laureate, where he it's a poem called Introduction to Poetry. So he's talking about his classroom of, of introduction uh, to poetry students and how he wants his students to do amazing things with his poems, uh, like drop a, a mouse into a poem and let's watch it find its way out or, um, you know, put press their ear to the to the hive of the poem and listen for the buzzing. And and then the one that sticks with me is uh, water ski across the surface of the poem waving to the author's name on the shore (laughs) and he says but instead all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair they start beating it with hoses to find out what it really means (laughs) now that's that's poetry but but i think the point is well well made and and especially maybe with something like the psalms i've heard countless sermons that have spent a lot of time talking about this psalm's relationship to the life of David or 
or this, you know, epistle of Paul? Was it, was he in prison or not? Where was he on his journey? And it's not that that's all unimportant, but a lot of it's unknowable, um, A. And if it's unknowable, it's probably not important. And it might actually take us away from what's really important, which is the words of scripture themselves. So I really don't think, we, we can't say that David wrote most of the Psalms. Um, and even the ones that are ascribed to David uh, are, we're not even clear, sure that that means that he authored them. They might just be in Davidic mode or dedicated to David or something. There's actually very few uh, pieces of evidence that that connect specific psalms to David's life, and and some of those tech that 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 data that does it connects to a part of David's life we don't know anything about from Samuel or Kings. So uh, I I think what it would be good for for Christians to to think more about or less about is is sort of the human authors and think more about the divine authorship of scripture. Um, ultimately, the inspiration of scripture means that God is the author, the ultimate author of scripture. And, and that's most significant and transcends whether it's Peter, Paul, Moses, David, Solomon, whomever. So I, I think that's, I think the ultimate point here is to not be overly enraptured by and particularly distracted by details that are not central to the message of the text at hand. Yeah. I, I think back, you know, you and I have had uh, across the years opportunity to be together at, at what's usually the largest kind of academic conference for, for yeah. like us, uh, the American Academy of Religion for ethicist types and the Society of Biblical Literature for Bible types. Um, I, I often talk about in my journey, the first time, you know, 25 years ago, I went to the SBLAAR it was such a shock having grown up in the church to go mm. to presentations and papers that like Collins is basically talking about poetry. It was tying a piece <laughs> of scripture to a chair. Right. And, and I, I tell people it was as though we were doing autopsies. We, the scripture was a dead body in front of mm. us that we were mm. kind of pulling apart and looking at these various pieces and, right. and wondering about it, you know, um, but had had lost the ability for that word then to jump off the table and speak back to us. Right. Right. And somewhere, somewhere there's this kind of connect. I know for both of us, there's this deep passion for the church and the Academy to stay connected. Mm-hmm. At what, what some of that revelation has done or that work that academics like yourself and others do in explicating context and all those kinds of things may help us hear that word more clearly and better, but it is still the voice of God speaking that matters in the use of the scripture and the way it forms us and moves forward. Yeah, that's um, right. Because, you know, sometimes, I mean, it, we do have this word that comes to us, not from last week, but from a long time ago. And that's partly it's time testedness. And so it's not that the antiquity, the ancient context of, of the Old Testament, New Testament don't matter. It's just what, what leads and, or, or also what, what finishes, right? What, what the telos of that is. And, you know, Christian reading is never at the end of the day, a purely antiquarian historical exercise, even though it's not completely divorced or removed from, from some matters of historical interest. Yeah. Can we talk about violence? Yeah. So talk. So, so yeah, violence is bad. Violence <laughs> is bad. <laughs> um, all right. Don't be okay. violent. No, no, no. Yeah, moving on. Don't be violent. Uh, I do think people, uh, and maybe it's places like the Book of Judges that's clearly PG thirteen, um, right. or a bit of Joshua and other places that mm-hmm. people have a perspective that. The Old Testament is just a violent text, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of Marcion back here, and that the God yeah. of the Old Testament is violent. Yeah. So uh, help us understand that. Well, I, you know, I'm working on it. I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to figure out ways to think about this. And, and again, to go back to the, your first question, I think, um, you know, my, in, my entrance in, in, into Old Testament is partly thinking about that's the great undiscovered country. But I think think if I, if I um, sort of try to find a, a, a unifying thread throughout a lot of my writing, it really is trying to explain the Old Testament for Christians and its difficult parts to, to Christians to apologize for it in the technical term to, to make an explanation and defense of it. And violence of late has been the, 
been one of the big stumbling blocks for for people and rightly so it's not you know again violence is bad we don't, we don't want anybody to be violent so uh people then struggle of course with the presence of violence in scripture why is it there what's it doing there etc can't we all just get along and all the rest and it, it is frequently associated with the old testament in a couple ways one is of course is the conquest of canaan joshua and judges um a little bit of deuteronomy in there too and then the other place is just the general idea of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Um, so the first way I try to respond to this in the, in the dying book and in the new book on lives um, is by really making the problem worse. <laughs> I like to make the problem worse. And that's just by pointing out that we can't be Marcionite about it that the New Testament has its fair share of violence as well. And even Jesus has his fair share of, of statements that strike us as violent. Uh, woe to you, uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida. It'd be better for Sodom. Sodom would have repented. And it will be better for Sodom at the end than, than you. Um, you will be dragged down to hell. I mean, Jesus said, this is in, <laughs> this is in the New Testament. I, I didn't make that up. Uh, or, uh, or, you know, maybe even worse, of all is, is the eschatological apocalyptic violence of the book of Revelation, where it's not just the first death, it's the second death. You know, talk about adding insult to injury or death to second. <laughs> Resurrected only to be killed again. That's right. And, That's right. and more violently than the first time. Yes, more violent. So, so in other words, violence and the problem of judgment or the wrath of God are biblical problems. Um, they, they live in both testaments. And so the first thing that cannot be said is that's an Old Testament problem and praise God, Jesus came or praise Jesus, Jesus came, right? Because it's, it's pervasive. And that means uh, it's a biblical issue. It's a biblical problem. And that also means maybe there are biblical solutions to it. Maybe it's not a case of, oh, the Old Testament's a problem, but the New Testament fixes it. Actually, maybe, maybe it lives in both. It definitely lives in both Testaments. So then maybe both Testaments have ways to contribute to understanding it. Um, and I think that's true. It's a huge problem. I don't, can't solve it myself and certainly solve it in five minutes. But in recent years, what's helped me is thinking about how the canon of scripture itself as a whole, scripture as a whole, offers uh, various strategies of containment uh, for violence. Um, and the Bible actually does this in a, in a vast number of ways that are very clever and helpful. So when we think about Joshua and judges and the taking of the land, for instance, it's the, the Bible, if we had time, we could get into some of the details, but the Bible is at pains, I think, to point out that this is a, a one-time restricted, limited thing to, to one period of Israel's life in one particular location, and it's not to be repeated after that. That doesn't fix that one time, right? I mean, that one time is still there, but what it says is that's not to be repeated. That's not a primary vision of the life of faith. That's, that's one moment in the history of God with Israel and with uh, humanity. And it's, it's contained, it's restricted to that, that the violence that's there is, is limited. Um, and that's an important, that's an important thing. The Bible, the Bible does is, is to limit that. It doesn't, it doesn't continue to say, in, in elsewhere in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, let's go be like Joshua and kill a bunch of Canaanites tonight. It right. just doesn't do that. And that's really important. And in fact, um, the fact that there are no more Canaanites or Gergashites or Hittites or Jebusites or whatever is part of the, a part of the point. The, the Christian church and, and the synagogue too, for that matter, couldn't put those materials into play anymore if they wanted to. There's no Gergashites to go out and smack, you know. So that's one thing. I think that's one containment strategy. Another containment strategy, if you could think about the Psalms for a minute, which you mentioned earlier, there's, there's lots of stuff going on in the Psalms that is, is quite, uh, well, we would call it violent speech, if nothing else. These, not only these laments and, and, and sadness and grief to God, but rage against God and rage against one's enemies, uh, the so-called cursing Psalms. And what's fascinating about that is, again, by our standards, we call that mm, hate speech about about our enemies. But it's not hate speech in the same way we would think about it, because it's now prayer. It's now couched within prayer. It's contained. It's it's no longer something I write 
vitriolically on Facebook or yell at somebody across a line of division at a, you know, down at the courthouse or something. It's, it's, it's couched in prayer. It's, it's not allowed to go public with my enemy. Um, it's, it's allowed to go public with God within the community of faith. And the community of faith might say, wow, Brent, you're really being oppressed by your enemy. We want to help you. Or they might say, man, your enemy needs to be contained somehow and, and help me with my enemy. Or they might say, Brent, you seem to be overreacting. <laughs> that maybe, maybe that's not your enemy. Maybe, maybe that's just Joe who happens to sit in the pew in front of you at church. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe that's not, you know, uh, Gog and Magog, you know, <laughs> or Babylon or, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe it's just Bob or Joe or Judy and they're not a ravening lion that's trying to destroy you. Maybe you've misinterpreted. So the, the context of, of worship contains that violence. It, it takes it to God. God's body can handle this violence in a way that our enemies' bodies can't. So that sort of rage that you can find in the cursing Psalms, it's exactly the kind of rage we can see every day on our TV set, but it's, but it's different because it's uttered in prayer. Um, so I think this is the way the Bible contains violence. And, um, and I worry, this is my last point, and then you probably want to jump in. My last point would be that I worry that our concerns about the Bible's violence, especially Old Testament violence over there, is actually maybe at the end of the day, a, a, a defense mechanism, a projection on our part. Well, we're not violent, but somebody else is. Because in point of fact, we're horribly violent. We, we entertain ourselves with violence every day on TV, um, whether we watch you know, cop shows or, or uh, hospital shows or hero shows, action movies. We play video games that not only just, you know, describe violence or depict it, that, that actually involve us in simulating it and give us extra points if we have headshots. I mean, we, we are horribly violent people and we entertain ourselves with it. The Bible's violence is pain compared to 21st century violence in its brutality, its effectiveness, and its, uh, you know, its, its uh, comprehensiveness. Uh, we we are we are the ones who are violent, and the Bible therefore might be prof- instead of projecting violence onto there, maybe kind of getting into the weeds and saying, "Oh wow, this violence is contained. This violence is is prayed." You know, it would actually help our own violence be restricted and uh, maybe made more productive and not so destructive. Yeah, I, I also think about how difficult it is, especially maybe for the the white American church in our militarism and our kind of superpowerness to mm-hmm. be able to read well, what it, literature that comes from a place of oppression. So I, um, mm-hmm. during the season, I have tried to read, especially some literature emerging out of the African American community. And so I'm, I'm uh, today I will mm-hmm. finish, uh, um, finish a novel on, um, on the underground railroad. Mm-hmm. And and when you read it from that perspective and you see the white oppressor and all of the violence that's being imposed upon a, a mm-hmm. person, you understand then how the cry for justice and for turning the tables yeah. has that that kind of imagination of overthrow in it. And, yeah. and you okay. know, so every time I read the book of Judges or lead people through the book of Judges, I want to remind them how silly all these battles are. Like they're mm. even even somebody as violent as Samson, it is it is God's Samson can't get credit for this, right? Like this right, is not right. it is it right. is God's work or uh the silliness of Gideon's battle against the Midianites, mm-hmm. um, where these are these are at least narrated as oppressive forces. It doesn't take care of all of the, all of the Canaanite violence. Right, right, um, right, right, right. But it, but it is, it is written from a place of people who are oppressed um, and narrating and seeing their life in that way. And a God who then stands with, yeah, with the totally. oppressed. So it's, it's dangerous in the hands of people who have such, such military might or power or, um, you know, weaponry at their, at their disposal. Right. Right. It's, it's dangerous. And also maybe if we uh, give the benefit of the doubt to, to, to Christians who mean well, it's disliked by such people because it suggests that maybe we're the ones who deserve God's judgment wow. and wrath. I mean, I, I think that the issue of social location is not is, is economic, it's, it's uh, ethnic and racial and so on and so forth. But it's also 
uh, maybe spiritual, you know, and, um, and those who are well off and settled and we're all as well and status quo is making my 401k perfectly fine. Thank you. I don't want an upsetting of the status quo. I don't want a God who judges. I want a God who supports. But if I'm on the underside of history, if I'm oppressed, you know, then I want a God who judges. I want a God who fights. And the scripture has both, right? The scripture has a God who loves us and a God who fights and who's not afraid to fight against us. And that is pervasive in the Old Testament and New Testament. And, you know, so that point about social location and, and all that, this is, it's, it's so strikingly uh, true. And, and again, we can trace it. I was, I was looking at a, a passage from uh, Rabbitoh's um, slave religion book the other day, and he quotes a, a slave named, uh, an, an enslaved a woman named Aggie, who is complaining about after her master beat her daughter. And Aggie's testimony that she gives is just, it could come right out of an imprecatory psalm. I mean, and the book of Revelation. And she's just can't wait for God to wreak havoc and judgment on the white people, you know? And that's merging out of her grief, her great grief and oppression. And she's appealing to the only person who could possibly help her in that, in that situation. Her white master's not going to help her. And, you know, it, that, that's uncomfortable maybe for some white people. And that's when we maybe need to flip over Revelation and, and read chapter six, where it says in heaven, no less than in heaven, under the altar are all these martyrs. And they come out and they tell God at, at you know, at this juncture in chapter six, when are you finally going to pay back the people who killed us? You right. know, they're sick of waiting for a delay of justice. They're, they're, they're begging in heaven. I mean, these aren't like sanctified, like people, oh, we, we forgive everybody. When are you going to pay them back, God? They're praying the exact same thing that Aggie said. They're praying the exact same thing that Psalm 137 says, or Psalm 58 says, or maybe Samson, you know, that's the, that. And they're saying it in heaven, the holy martyrs of God are praying for that. And so, you know, who are we to think we're better than what scripture itself gives us in these, these examples. Let me ask you one more question about the book um, that's kind of related to this conversation. And that is in my little book on exile and part of the way I read that and don't, don't correct me if it was wrong, but is that <laughs> in those early parts where, where Israel is oppressed and God hears those Aggies cries and brings mm -hmm. them out the Torah or law becomes this place where now they're going to be formed to be a different kind of people. And then exile from the prophetic perspective is interpreted as, well, you, they, that really didn't happen. Like you ended up becoming in many ways, very much like the oppressors from whom I delivered you. And so now you've ended up back in exile. So talk about the law just a little bit. Um, what should we think about the law? Yeah, so in my in my uh, year-long intro course here at, at Duke, I, and for, for many years now, actually back at Emory too, I, I sort of tried to narrow in on sort of four problems that the Old Testament presents to Christians and kind of take it up as we go along through the through the course of the year. There, there's lots of problems the Old Testament poses for contemporary Christians in the New Testament as well, too. But one would be, you know, the wrath and judgment of God or cursing one's enemies as a stand-in for what we think is problematic ethics. Violence is a third one. So we've, we've covered those already to some degree. And the fourth one is the problem of priestly law. What is this law doing in the Bible and the Old Testament? And, and, you know, thank goodness we can all go and have all we, all we want to eat shrimp, you know, now that we're Gentiles or something, you know. So what is, what is the Torah doing? What's the problem with, you know, law? Why is there law? What's the law good for? Um, my, I have to say my first thinking about law in this regard and thinking about law more positively emerges from my upbringing where I thought, you know, I suddenly made the connection, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of the people I go to church with or how I was raised was sort of borderline Marcionite, you know, we don't need the Old Testament or we don't need the Old Testament law. But guess what? We never escaped the law. We were, we were quite legalistic in lots of ways, but the law was just from this like letters of Paul. We just got the letters of Paul and and we treated those comments that Paul makes as, as ethical imperatives, especially at ends of letters. We treated that like law, you know, pray without ceasing. And if you don't, shame on you, you know, <laughs> give thanks in all things, you know, et cetera. And shame on you if you don't. These become new laws. So, so the problem of legalism, again, isn't, isn't just a, an Old Testament phenomenon. It's very much a Christian phenomenon. And, and even the genre of law 
uh, you know, ethical imperatives and whatnot. That's that's all in the New Testament too. But yeah, I think what you're pointing to is quite right about the law. I think as we think about um, the moves of, of, of God in the Old Testament, the beginning, the creative activity of God in Genesis and the creative activity of God in, in saving Israel, that too is described in creative ways, is conjoined with the redemptive act of God, you know, God trying to set the world straight again after the Garden of Eden, and then God redeeming Israel from Egypt, the creator, redeemer, we're looking for some sustainer, aren't we? And that's the law. I mean, the law is the way Israel and God sustain their relationship. The covenant with God is the sustaining aspect. So let's say God, the creator is, uh, is the first member. Well, that means uh, God, the redeemer, Jesus Christ is active in bringing the people across the Red Sea and the Holy Spirit, the sustainer is there at the mountain, giving the people the Torah. And that, that, that becomes this, this way that, that Israel lives its life back in obedience to God, not to earn its righteousness, not to earn its salvation, because we know they've already been saved from Egypt. You know, this isn't justification. This is sanctification. And, and that's how, that's how Wesley thought about it. And he built in part on, upon John Calvin. I know John Calvin can be a bad name and can be a kind of a cuss word, but, <laughs> but Calvin saw this in the Christian tradition with one of the great uh, thinkers about the law. And he said, the law is what the people of God look like. You know, if the people of God are doing what they should do, it looks like the law. And so in the reformed tradition and classical reformed tradition, you confess your sins every Sunday. And it's after you confess your sins and receive the assurance of pardon that you stand up and you recite the 10 commandments, because now you can, you've been forgiven. You, and, and now you're ready to be sanctified to keep the Lord's law. So the law is, plays this kind of maintenance function, and the law, parts of the law, the early church says don't apply kosher legislation, but the most important parts of the law do. And this is seen in the way the New Testament repeats the Ten Commandments, repeats right. fundamental moves. I mean, James, when James says, you know, real religion is this, to take care of orphans and widows, He's been reading Leviticus. That's what James has been doing um, and Deuteronomy and Exodus. Yeah. I mean, he, he's been reading all the Torah legislation about widows and orphans. And when Jesus says the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't get rid of the Ten Commandments. He makes them harder. So this and why would that be? Because law is what the people of God look like. This is the way we sustain. This is the presence of the spirit maintaining and sustaining us in our life with God. That's beautiful. All right, so that was powerful. That whole sustainer thing that may show up in some sermons, and I may not. Ah, I would be honored. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, it reminds me. I I have tried to help students think of the law. I think some of our Protestant heritage has caused us to think of Torah or law as the way to salvation, as though these right. are the rules we have to follow in order to be saved. And I think even our kind of modern legalism can sometimes make you know, you have to do these things to get to right. salvation right. rather than no, this is this life now in the spirit, but this, this law that shapes and forms us, this is salvation for, mm -hmm. I mean, this is what this is what it looks like to embody salvation to the world is. Yeah. Just sometimes it's being obedient, not doing the wrong thing. That that's, that's the sanctifying presence of God in our life, you know? So, um, you know, I, I think sometimes we too, as Christians think, oh my gosh, there's so many laws over there. Well, there are, there's 612, according to the rabbi, but the rabbis counted 612 in the Torah, but that's a fraction of what's on the North Carolina law code. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, my son's in law school right now. And he told us the other day that according to his law professors, you know, the average citizen in North Carolina breaks, I know, dozens of laws every day, advertently <laughs> or inadvertently, you know? So, you know, it, it by, by comparison, 612 in the Torah shouldn't yeah, be that hard. Easy. It shouldn't be yeah. that hard. There should it, be an acronym we can <laughs> remember all 612. <laughs> well, just a couple last questions, Brent. So yeah. um, I know, I mean, people should get your book and do small groups and think about the Old Testament together. Um, but you've been at this now at three different institutions, both at uh, Asbury and Emory and now at Duke and have been educating future church leaders. Um, you know, people get kind of skittish about this generation uh, mm -hmm. and nervous, but what, what makes you, what makes you excited? What changes have you seen? This is, this is an hour long conversation itself. So I'm asking, yeah, right, 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 right. like, as you work with students today, what, what, 
what is interesting and exciting to you about, mm -hmm. about them? Well, I, I, I think there's lots to talk about here, like you said, and, and, um, and my experiences have, have definitely changed over the years from it, not only cause it's been over 20 years since I started, um, that reflects a change in students also reflects a change in me as a teacher and also, uh, in the quite varied context, these three schools are similar in a lot of ways, but, but very different in other ways. Um, so, you know, of late, well, of late, I think at, at, I'd say that one of the things that gave me concern since you mentioned that or, or sadness in uh, my work at Emory, why I directed the doctor ministry program for about five years there. And so those folks who coming back are, you know, have been pastors for a while and now they're seeking additional education and, you know, doing that for five years and, and working with a, you know, hundred or so, I guess, pastors through that course of that time or maybe more, I don't know now. Um, what struck me as cause for concern and sadness was uh, just uh, how scared um, they seem to be, um, how scared they were to say anything really important um, because of their, of what, of the repercussions that might happen. And, um, and that was, that was made me sad. It made me mad uh, as well. Um, of course, it was easy for me to be sort of fired up about it because I wasn't in a, in their church <laughs> easier to, to, to encourage and all that and coach from the side than it is to be on the field and deal with, uh, you know, the other team or, or your own team and, and, you know, teammates that aren't on the same page or something. But, but that was a, that was kind of, that's been kind of a turning point for me in my teaching since then to try to motivate and equip future pastors with the kind of courage they need to speak the truth about God's word, um, regardless of the cost, you know, uh, and how to do it in a way that's true, faithful to God and God's word, but also, you know, not stupid, <laughs> rhetorically, <laughs> cute. you know, being uh, as innocent as doves and as, as shrewd as, as vipers, um, being pastoral, but also being a servant of the word, uh, a servant, not only a servant of the people, but a servant of the, of the prophets and the psalmists and the gospel writers, bridging that gap and thinking about not just the priestly task, but the prophetic task and the monarchic task and the, the, the wise task, the wise, the, the wise are the, another important category, I think, along with prophet, priest, and king, the, the wise are, is another important pastoral um, role. So that's something that kind of gave me cause for concern and also sort of encourages me in my, my present teaching. Um, I think then in the last two years coming here to Duke, I've been encouraged by um, my students' deep and profound faith and their desire to know more and their desire to connect the things that we're talking about in my scripture courses with things they're learning in early church history uh, and with, um, you know, Christianity more generally, the, the, the faith. Uh, and also, of course, of late, the students' great interest in uh, the matters that exercise us all in our culture. Um, you know, the, the pandemic and systematic, uh, systemic racism and, and, um, economic disparity. And so the, the way they're trying to think hard about the early tools and resources of the church and theology, it's, it's, it's scripture and all the rest, and also then think about the present problems we face. That's, that's been encouraging to me. Um, and I think here at Duke, I've been happy with, with the way they're, they're trying to be united. Sometimes schools tend to favor one or the other. And um, I, I feel like if, since I've arrived here, I've been encouraged that this is a place that the students are trying to do both. And, and I think that's a, that's a real benefit. Um, so those are, those, are, those are some of the things I'd lift up. Good. You've made me hopeful. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Last question. So most of the folks um, who will probably listen or watch this are kind of average Joe and Jane Christian trying to make their way in faithfulness uh, through their daily lives. So what, what last advice would an Old Testament scholar give to folks trying to be faithful to the Lord? Well, two things come to mind, Scott. I just... <laughs> <laughs> 
don't know no, how to go make it with either without either well, of those. How did those where did those come from? Where did those those get available there? now at Amazon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just add it to your cart. Just add it to your cart. You don't have to buy now. You could buy later. Yeah. Um, no, I, 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 you, you told me about this question coming up and I, so I have thought about it a, a bit and um, it does relate to my thinking about this Old Testament dying uh, book because I start that book with this vignette where I was teaching at a church in Atlanta and, um, and it was a, a group of, of mostly you know, septuagenarians, octogenarians, there's probably a nonagenarian or two in there, um, 70s, 80s, 90s, that, that's, that's a lot of the, of the age group that happens when I go to churches. That's a, a lot of the people who go to church, and, and especially in, in uh, some of the mainline denominational teaching that I would do and have done, Episcopal, Methodist, Presbyterian, whatever. And uh, I was teaching and I, I was actually used the cry of dereliction as an example that you just mentioned, Psalm 22 from the cross. And I, I mentioned the, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And it wasn't even a main point. And I wasn't trying to make anybody feel that. I thought this would be a point of crowd involvement. And I say, hey, where, where did that come from? Anybody know where that comes from? And uh, no one in this uh, small group of, of wizened old saints who'd been around the church barn for a long time knew that that came from Psalm 22. That's a small little vignette. I mean, no, nobody's salvation hangs on that. But suddenly, like it hit me, man, Brent, the Old Testament is dying. I mean, people don't know the Old Testament. And again, I think that's indicative of people not knowing the New Testament either. And so actually that then thinking about the Old Testament is dying, got me thinking about the, the Old Testament as a language or like a language, then languages die. And so I started thinking about human linguistics and all this, and it all just started as little pieces here and there and eventually started coming up in little lectures. And then I gave a couple lectures series and then I did teaching at church about it and then eventually came, came to fruition in this book. But at root, at root, the insight is, um, you know, if we don't know a language, it, it will die and it will die in one generation. And we are learning languages all the time. The question is, is scripture one of those? Is the language of faith one of those? And if, if scripture is like a language or is a language, um, that means that it has to be acquired. It's not our native tongue. And it's hard to learn a new language. Most people don't do it. Most people don't like doing it. They give up after middle school or high school when you have to, or college when you, you have to learn another language or have to take a, a language. It's just hard and you don't want to do it. And, um, and yet everything hangs on it for Christians, you know, for us to acquire the language of faith and the language, of, that's, that's a different language. It, it's a, it's an important first step to see, oh, what I've been raised with as a person in North America is not the same as the Christian language or, or the language of scripture. That's another language. That, that's a second language I have to acquire. And in the meantime, you know, we're bombarded with words. We're bombarded with language. You know, linguists say you can hear up to 200,000 words a day inputting in your brain. And it just struck me one day as I thought about that stat, how many of those words are scriptural words for the average Christian? Less than a percent, you know, half a percent. And, and what about every day? Forget about it, right? Forget about it. So no wonder we have churches that don't know what they're supposed to do or Christians who don't know what they're supposed to do or end up doing the wrong thing. Sin's one thing, but ignorance is another, right? And ignorance of the faith, ignorance of scripture. So what I would say to the average person is crack open that Bible every <laughs> single day. And it's not going to be easy, right? Unless you're used to it, it's going to take some time. It's like, it's like a vaccine. You got to build up some resistance to it. It's inoculating itself. You got to get used. It's not like reading a, tw a tweet or a Facebook post or, or whatever. You've got to build up a tolerance and, and a love for it. And it's going to happen, but it's patient, attentive reading every day. Not, not devotional literature. I mean, that's okay. Not someone else's words. That's okay the Bible itself, in it every day, letting it become a grammar through which you see, perceive, negotiate the world. That's what I want the average Christian to do. And the average Christian can do it as long as they can read and as long as they have a Bible in their vernacular. And, and thankfully, we have a million options of Bibles in our vernacular, especially the common English Bible. Especially. <laughs> 
also available now. Um, also available. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks, Brent, for this conversation. Thanks for being the kickoff uh, for these new creation conversations. I know our both our mothers will love them. Yes, let's um, hope so. Love Shout this out. Conversation. But, <laughs> but no, seriously, thanks for your just your friendship across the years and for your continued work um, in Old Testament and then forming the next generation of leaders for, for Christ Church. Um, well, thanks to you too. And for, be, for, for I've never worried about you telling any lies, Scott. So I'm going right. to say that. I, well, yeah. I'm going to get through the book to make sure just in case I've been <laughs> just telling just a couple of them. So <laughs> thanks a lot. It's been great. Always right. great to chat with you. Thanks on, for having All right. See y'all. Thanks for joining us on New Creation Conversations. This video cast and podcast is a ministry of Nampa College Church, New Creation Community Middleton, and New Creation Community Online. Watch for new video cast episodes each week on Facebook or Vimeo and subscribe to our New Creation Conversation podcast on iTunes and other podcast services. Help us stay in contact with you by liking or subscribing to the Nampa College Church Facebook page and help us reach out to others by leaving us a rating on the podcast. Our theme music is called Daydream by Crowander. Check out more of his music at crowander.com and go in Christ's peace.